Good morning, church. Hear the word of the Lord, Mark 3, 20 through 35. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd came together so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, he's gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. And he called to them and said, he spoke to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed, the house can be plundered. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an internal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. So what we're dealing with today in Mark is what scholars like to call a chiasm. But if that's too fancy of a word for you, I suggest that we might call it a Mark and Sandwich instead. It's a little simpler of term, and it's a, it's a literary device that happens often in Mark, and once you see it, you start seeing it everywhere. You see a Mark and Sandwich, a chiasm is exactly what it sounds like. Bread, meat, then bread. This story is going to kind of follow a, a traveling in and then a traveling out. This begins with Jesus and his family, and it ends with Jesus and his family. The story starts with Jesus is literally in the text outside his mind, and so his family comes to take him home. And then the scribes have come down from Jerusalem, and they accuse him of being possessed by Beelzebul. And uh, so Jesus tells two parables. The first is that a house that's divided can't stand, and then a story about robbing a strong man's house. And then we have the scribes again say, well, clearly he is possessed. And the story ends with his family again trying to take him home. 
Do you see the motion that the story takes? Now, what's interesting about chiasms in Mark is that usually the story in the middle kind of helps us interpret the stories that are on the outside, that these stories talk to one another. And if you don't like Mark and Sandwich, then think of it like a baseball diamond. It begins at home plate, it travels around, and ends back at home. In this case, it really does begin at home. Those that should have known Jesus best, those that should have understood what the Messiah was the clearest, his families, and those uh, who should have been quickest to recognize the Savior, the teachers of the law, they don't see and they don't understand. This is a story about two houses. One summer, it was the summer between my sixth grade and my second or seventh grade year, um, I spent the summer in two different houses. Uh, my best friend, his name was Dylan, and he lived kind of on the other side of our uh, elementary school, and we were the best of friends, not because we particularly liked one another or because we had anything in common, but because my last name was Hughes and his last name was Cohane, and we always sat together from the second grade on. We were always right next to each other. And so we were just kind of forced into the same situation and hung out. And so that summer between my sixth grade and my seventh grade year, we spent almost every day together and we spent nearly every night either him staying in my house or, or I was staying at his house and sometimes just kind of in the morning we'd wake up at one person's house and ride our bikes over just to see what was happening at the other house and then spend the night over there. We spent a lot of time together but we had two very different houses. I loved being at Dylan's house. Uh, both of his parents were uh, working a lot and, and they kind of weren't there very much. They weren't paying very close attention. And that gave these two sixth grade boys a lot of freedom. And so we did a lot of fun things like we would take our GI Joes and some hairspray and a lighter and just kind of saw what happened. And we spent a lot of time on our bikes when we were at his house, just roaming around the neighborhood to see what we could see and see what we got into. One time we made this massive mud pit in his backyard, totally destroyed their lawn. But man, it was so much fun. For lunch at Dylan's house, often, uh, more often than not, there was just like a gift card to a pizza place. And we would call the pizza place and order pizza, which as sixth grade boys, we thought was the coolest thing in the world. And that's what we ate. My house was a little bit different. Both of my parents were teachers. And so everybody was home over the summer and we didn't get away with very much. My parents would never give us access to lighters and hairspray. And uh, our play was much more structured at my house. And instead of having pizza, we would have things like celery sticks and peanut butter. I mean, come on. I'll tell you what, though. I loved my time at Dylan's house. But Dylan... He loved the time at my house way more. We love for being at one of those houses for very different reasons. 
And looking on, back on it now as an adult, I see some things that I couldn't see before, which was Dylan's house was in chaos. His parents were uh, fighting. They were on their way uh, to breaking up. There was constant conflict and strife. Nothing was ever stable. He was often kind of fending for his own meals in the evenings. And his house was divided. He and I kind of broke up as friends when we got into high school. We kind of ended up in different uh, social groups. And back then it was kind of this understanding that, that we didn't talk to each other because of the past we had chosen. And Dylan's house was divided and it, it couldn't stand. Dylan's now a pot dealer in Boulder. And here's Jesus' family who want to get in the house because Jesus is out of his mind, but it's so busy and it's so crowded that the disciples, they can't get in. In fact, the disciples are so busy, they can't even eat. And here come the folks from Jerusalem and they're accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed. They call him of being possessed by Beelzebul, which is the god of Ekron, and that's in uh, 2 Kings chapter 1. It's mentioned just a, a few times and, and that's how he's able to drive out demons because he is one. The, accuser, the accusation is that he's a, a Philistine god. It was mistranslated as um, Lord of the Flies by William Golding. I think some of you may have read that book in, in high school. Uh, and there's two sense of Lord of the Flies. Probably the truest sense is that Beelzebul had wings, and so it was a god of the air. It was a demon of the air, and so it had power over things that flew. It was a very mighty god. Um, but the way Jewish translators or interpreters would like to mock it is not god of the powers and the principalities of the air, but god of the flies. And if you spend any time in a cow pasture, you know where the flies gather to worship. And so calling Jesus Beelzebub is more than just calling him possessed. It's a pretty stark insult. That's probably a bad translation. The best translation is not Lord of the Flies, but Lord of the House. Which makes sense then why Jesus tells a couple of stories about houses. Houses that are divided and houses and kingdoms that are divided simply cannot stand. And you know this is true in your own life. You've seen those families where one supports the Aggies and the other supports the Longhorns. Those houses cannot stand. You've seen those families. You've seen where one side supports the Cowboys and one side supports the Texans. And those houses, well, that doesn't even exist because nobody really cares about the Texans anyway. First service didn't think that was funny. So I don't, I might have stepped on some toes there. But Jesus' point is simple. I can't be a demon if I'm driving out demons. But, but let me tell you about a strong man. The strongest man in Europe right now, his name is Hafthor Bjornsson. And uh, he is, uh, he's kind of an actor. You might have seen him in, in uh, uh, Game of Thrones. And, and he is the strongest man in Europe. This is him uh, breaking a record, a Viking contest record uh, that has stood for a thousand years. He's carrying that giant log up through that pathway. Uh, that log weighs over a thousand pounds. He's able to hoist it on his back. But the crazy thing about Hafthor is that his family is enormous. Here's a picture of him with his father and his grandfather. And just 
just for scale, I want you to notice the couch behind them all. <laughs> but the crazy thing about Half uh, Thor's uh, family is his brothers, right? Like he is the runt of the litter. This is Half Thor with like normal sized people. Here he is with his two brothers. He's the shortest one. Incredibly strong man. And you can't just break into a strong man's house unless you take care of him first. You're not going to be able to steal anything. He's going to beat you to a pulp. And this story functions as an allegory. The strong man is a demon and the robber is Jesus. And the only way you can tie up a strong man is if you are stronger the religious leaders respond. He clearly has an unclean spirit. And then Jesus, he drops one of the hardest things he says in the entire gospel. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, people can be forgiven of all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. And this isn't typically the way we understand our view of God. God is the good father who gives good gifts. God is the, the good father who wants to give wonderful things to his children. He's the, the good father who waits by the gate for the prodigal to return. And then the key of that text is not so much that the good father is waiting for that wayward son to come back. It's what happens immediately after when he sees his son in the distance, that good father runs. No rich and powerful man in the first century ran ever anywhere because they didn't have to. The clock started and set by them. But our God is the good father who runs. I mean, you might even say that he's the, the grandfather, if we're not careful. That grandfather that's so generous, God is almost sloppy with his love. And so this text, at least it gives us pause. But if we think about it, it should really terrify us. And there's been a lot of thought given to what exactly Jesus is talking about, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as the unforgivable sin, what is it? Uh, well, what is blasphemy is probably a good place to start. Blasphemy is, is speaking harm. It's talking or acting in an irreverent way to sacred things. It's assuming the rights or qualities of God. And, and in, in the context, the teachers from Jerusalem are seeing the work of God through Jesus Christ, and they're calling it the work of Beelzebul or an unclean spirit. Jesus' statement isn't unclear. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven of the sons of men, whatever blasphemes they utter. Literally, he says, all things will be forgiven to the sons of men, the sins and the blasphemes, whatever they blaspheme then, except the blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. He says it three times in two sentences. It seems like what Jesus is saying is you can blaspheme against God and walk away from it, repent and forgive, but not the Holy Spirit. Which leads us to ask the question, why? Well, one of the functions of the Spirit is it's the thing that works in us to bring us back to God. 
It's that still voice in our heart that says, are you sure this is the choice you want to make? Are you sure this is the most loving and holy thing to do with your life? It's the voice that calls you back. It's that feeling of of holy, healthy guilt. That warning bell in your mind that tells you to run. And so imagine what happens when you cut yourself off from that voice. It's what what Paul calls a seared conscience. And it leads to a a lot of things, but probably the the biggest is a a moral turmoil in your life. It's like being tossed around in a, a turbulent river. People will will drown in a turbulent river because they fight so hard to swim to the bottom where the stones are because they can't figure out which way is up. And, And Jesus seems to be warning these religious leaders and this family that should know him best, be careful that you don't commit that kind of sin. I think one of the questions that we have to ask is this is, is this sin a state of being or is it an action once committed? That is to say, is it something that creates a trajectory or is it just a moment that happens in our life? And I think from this this text, what we see is that it's an ongoing action. I think the key is, is is, is is Mark says, because they were saying, as opposed to because they said. The heart and where it is, not so much the event for the past. It seems in Mark, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is being able to unable or is, is being unable to discern the work of the Spirit from the work of demons. And so, if you're like me, you might be sitting in church feeling a little nervous. Have I done this? Am I am I doing this? Is this my trajectory now? I think the fact that your heart is asking you that question probably indicates that the Holy Spirit is still alive and active and working in your life. I think the question to ask yourself is, has there been a moment where I've seen the work of Jesus and because I didn't like it, I refused it to be true. I called it the work of something evil instead and I've missed what God is doing in the world. Just look at the crowd of misfits that are crowded in that house. How they are drawn to the love and power of Jesus. They aren't worried about the religious power structures of the day. If Jesus is going to teach proper Sabbath rules or if he's going to heal on the wrong day. They love him so much they just can't not be around him. They won't even let him have a little lunch because they want to hear more from him. They can discern the spirits. Why can't the teachers of the law? And I think this illustrates how difficult this really is in the first century and in our time. How difficult was it for those scribes from Jerusalem to accept a man from nowhere as Messiah when he confronts and dismantles the religious system that they dedicated their life to? How difficult would it have been for this Jewish movement to begin accepting Gentiles as brothers and sisters? They previously thought of them as less than dogs. Peter had to be convinced several times that this is what God was doing before he could accept it. Is this the movement of the spirit? Is this the work of God? Or was this something else? 
You can think of the role that Luther played in the, the Protestant movement. I mean, Luther didn't want to start by splitting Western Christianity in half. It's just what happened at the end of the day because he, he was chasing purity over unity and he tried to reform what he saw that was wrong going into the church at the time. Was that the work of the spirit or was that the work of a demon? Or you could argue the role of the emancipation from slavery. Abraham Lincoln quoted this text when he tried to argue about the freedom of slaves. But the religious scholars and leading thinkers in America at the time could find very real supportable evidence within scripture why slavery should remain. But the truth was they were blind to the deeper meaning of scripture that spoke of everyone created in the image of God. Or in our own time, is an opening for the role of women's participation in worship, a leading of the Holy Spirit, or is it stepping away from the truth? Are other movements in our culture the fresh breath of the Holy Spirit, or is it the disintegration of society and sin creeping its way in? And how do you know? What if we make the wrong discernment? And I think that should give any of us pause. And if that sounds terrifying to you, imagine how much more that sits in the hearts of our elders. But I think what this text tells us is that what God needs are hearts that are open and malleable to him, soft clay, not rigid and calloused, people that hear his voice and repent, people that listen to the Holy Spirit, that hear a voice that says stay or go and they follow. Jesus in this parable isn't the strong man, he's the robber. And if we carry the allegory out, the thing that he's come to steal is us. Jesus has come to set us free and we are stuck in the house of a strong power. And maybe what frees us more than anything else is our imagination to create communities and families where there is no power of the dynamic and the evil. If God can imagine that reality, then we can live into it. Who is stronger than the strong man? His name is Jesus, and he has come to set you free. Because the strong man wants to keep you captive. The strong man wants to keep you in your own chains of inactivity, emotional sloppiness, mental laziness. He wants to keep you unmotivated, unable to grasp the potential of your own power. The strong man wants to keep you lazy. But who is, the strong, who is stronger than the strong man? His name is Jesus. The strong man wants to keep you in the basement of his house with your hands clenched so tightly around the chains. He doesn't even have to have chains on you anymore. The shackles have long fallen off, but you just hang on because you want to keep grabbing more and more and more, believing that somehow the more that you collect and the more that you save is going to keep you safe and secure. Greed will keep you in the strong man's house by your own volition. But who is the stronger than the strong man? His name is Jesus. Who is stronger than the strong man? 
You started at first with just doing some kind of self-medicating to ease the pain and the hurt around you. But quickly what became as self-medication becomes the power that controls you and you don't see the way out. And you are bound to the strong man because you can't see another future for yourself. But I have to tell you the truth that there is one that is stronger than the strong man and his name is Jesus. And he is going into the strong man's house. He is more powerful than the strong man and he has come to set you free. This text ends in a peculiar way. It began with Jesus' family and, and that's where it ends. And, and Jesus is answering his family's question, where is your family? By flipping who is inside and, and who is out. And I want to acknowledge today that those are, there are people here in this room that are, you're here without your spouse or you're here without your parents. And for the sake of Christ, you have lost relationships and opportunities. I want to acknowledge how glad we are that you are here. And how difficult it is to get yourself up by yourself on a Sunday and find the motivation to come, especially when your kids or your spouse really doesn't want you to go. They'd really rather you stay. We are so glad. And if you've come here as a single parent, spiritually or, or just in reality, we know how difficult it is to get your kids ready to go. And we don't care if your kids are wearing mismatched shoes and there's a big stain on your shirt because you didn't see it until five minutes ago. We are glad you are here. My wife is a single parent every Sunday morning and we understand exactly how difficult it is for you to be here. And the truth of this text, the promise of this text, is that Jesus, he went through the same thing. And he calls you son, brother, sister, mother. Jesus says, the people who do my work, they are my family. We've been engaging in some spiritual disciplines uh, this series, and it's at the bottom of your bulletin. I want to draw your attention there. If this is your first week here. Uh, just write your name and your email address on the front, and then turn it over, and there's three disciplines that you can commit to this week. Uh, you tear this off uh, and drop it off in the uh, boxes around the edge of the room as you leave. We're going to send you an email that'll give you some tips and reminders of how to keep these disciplines in your life. Remember, disciplines are just like posture, as Gretchen was saying. It just puts you in a place where you can hear God more clearly. The first one's quite simple, is, is spend some time this week asking God to soften your heart. And so often the, the, the grind of our lives and kind of the, the, the peace treaty that we made with sin, it makes our hearts hard or callous to the voice of God. And so spend some time this week just doing the work in prayer to, to have a soft heart. The second is to have clear eyes. The work of discernment is not easy and seeing what God is doing in this world, it might surprise you. It might not be what you think it is. And so this week, spend some time having eyes that are open to see what God is doing and ask God to grant you that vision. The third one is, is very easy, but it's gonna be incredibly beneficial. It's the act of gratitude. More often than not in your spiritual walk, the act of gratitude puts you in a place where you can appreciate others and you're gonna find a world of good that happens from that. 
And so this week, spend a little bit of time, 15 minutes, writing a note to someone that has been your spiritual brother or sister, aunt or uncle, mother or father, and just tell them thank you. They probably have no idea the impact that they had in your life. Write them a little note and, and send it in the mail. Write them an email or give them a text that says, look, I just really want you to know how much I appreciate the way that God has used you in my life. Tear that off, drop those in the baskets as you leave and, and find yourself in a place this week where you can be shaped by God. Would you please stand for our benediction? The promise of a good father is that his grace will never end. His love knows no boundary and he will not stop in chasing and pursuing you and calling you back home. And so this week, may you live in the fullness of God's grace and mercy and may you have the courage to see him and follow him wherever he goes. May you be filled with God's grace and go in peace.